I think to say, oh, Europe's weathered the storm, it got through a couple of elections, the far right didn't really seize the day, and we're okay, we don't have Le Pen, Europe's going to be just fine, might be a little premature. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America and Professor at Georgetown University. She's also the author of How Everything Became War and The Military Became Everything. Also joining us in Washington is Julie Smith, who is heading up FP's Shadow Government blog with Colin Call and Derek Chalet. She is also Senior Fellow and Director of Strategy and Statecraft Program at the Center for New American Security. And also with us is Ed Luce, the Financial Times Chief U.S. Commentator and Columnist. Ed is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, which will be released on June 6th. ER nerds, keep sending us your saddest pleas and nerdiest ideas. You may be one of the lucky ones that gets a mug before they go on sale, if that ever happens, which may be soon. Who knows? There's mugs and there's sweatshirts and T-shirts, and we have to figure out how to do it. I think we're going to create a store on the website. People can order them, but we'll see. It's going to happen, but who knows when. Recently... In our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we all gathered and sang the Marseillaise, <laughs> just like the scene in Casablanca. It's a tear. Like looking around the room, there's a tear in everyone's eye. We are happy. France is restored to the center of the universe. It's, 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 it's so fantastic that once again, France has come to the rescue of America, much as in the days of the Marquis de Lafayette. You were here for that, Ed. Yeah, I'm still bitter at the memory. Yeah, I was. Sorry. I was here. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On Cornwallis's side, right? Yeah. Very sad. <laughs> no, the plains of Abraham. Right yeah, exactly. The world turned upside down. Yeah. But you know, the world has been turned upside down in some respects because I can remember not too long ago when your countryman Ed had made the brilliant decision to move forward with Brexit and. Then our countrymen had made the brilliant decision to move forward with Trump. More tears than eyes for different reasons. Lots of tears, exactly. That we sort of had this view that there was this wave coming, nationalism, anti-multilateralism. The EU was going to be irrelevant. Once Britain left, everybody else would leave. And now we have a slightly different picture. First, there was a squeaker in Austria then a somewhat better result in the Netherlands, then a resounding result really in France with Macron getting twice the votes of Marine Le Pen. Meanwhile, Britain, (laughs) which was going to break up the EU, (laughs) looks like it's heading towards an election which may lead to the breakup of Great Britain um, into smaller little bits and pieces. And Europe looks strong. And Trump and Putin look a little weaker. Can, can I well, look? You're asking if the, the glass of champagne is, is half full or half empty. It's definitely half full at the moment. And vive la France, Marseille. I, I will remember the words of the Marseillais at some point in this podcast, but I won't actually inflict them on you. So I agree with all of that. An unmitigatedly good result on Sunday in France for Macron's two thirds of the vote victory. But let's just the greatest achievement by France since 1066. Since 1066, (laughs) since it saved and made modern England. Exactly. (laughs) I fully agree with all of that. But let's not before we down an entire bottle of champagne. 
Let's look at the timeline here. In the 90s, the Front National got a million votes. Mm-hmm. 2002, it got 5 million. Yesterday, it got almost 11 million. Um, one third of France voted for a nut. And if, if you saw any of the transcript of the debate between Macron and Le Pen last week, and you still voted, or watched it, of course, and you still voted for Le Pen, which one third of France did, well, boy, that, that, that to me is a very low bar for celebrating the health of liberal democracy. But that being said, I see a half full glass of champagne, which I'm going to down, you know, the moment you let me sip. Wait a second. I'm hearing a subtext here. Somebody has written a book called The Retreat of Western Liberalism. France. It wasn't me. All, no, it wasn't you. <laughs> no, because it war became everything. I don't see – I honestly <laughs> don't see that this, this is the end of what is a pretty deeply baked structural crisis. Uh, Macron, can I just add one point to the one I just made? Yeah. Today, Monday, um, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, said that under no circumstances – this is in the wake of Macron's victory. Under no circumstances would Germany consider changing the EU's fiscal rules. Now, for Macron to succeed, he's got to do that. And he doesn't have a party. And Hollande, who had a majority in the French Assembly, got nothing done. He had gridlock. So the idea that Macron isn't actually um, in some ways a gift to Le Pen because there will be more stasis, more gridlock, more crisis... Should not be dismissed. That said, I really hope that Macron succeeds. I really fervently hope that that um, that this is the moment we think it is. Well, I was happy when I came in here. <laughs> now I'm starting Sorry. to get a little bit bummed out. You can have Julie, a pint of beer, Julie. Weren't you Keep in drinking. like Europe? Okay. Weren't you? Yeah, I'm just back. And yes. so you probably have a fresh perspective. I have well, a fresh perspective, but not on the French election. But uh, yes, I got back Saturday night before the election. Where but, were you? Uh, Brussels and Oslo, oh. in the north, the heart of the beast. Mm, ah, yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Well, what's your take on all of this, as someone who follows European things closely? I'm I'm with Ed. I uh, I think I'll celebrate a little bit. I'll have a half a glass of champagne, but I think Macron has a lot of work to do. He promised everybody the moon. Reform sounds lovely when you're making a campaign speech. But for a guy that doesn't have a lot of political allies, he's never run for political office, he's very young, it's going to be a tough uphill climb. A lot of folks were prepared to support him yesterday because they didn't want to see Le Pen win. But whether or not they're going to support him tomorrow remains to be seen. And it appears by all counts, you know, France is going to have parliamentary elections in June. And it looks like the National Front's going to get, you know, somewhere around 100 seats. That's serious. And I think it's not going away. Their grievances aren't going away. And the degree to which Macron can reform France from the inside out, work to get the Franco-German engine restarted again, and make the EU more attractive to a very skeptical European public about its overarching value remains to be seen. So I'm not really prepared to sound overly confident of course, I'm sighing a big uh, – there's a big wave of relief uh, among many of us. But, boy, will he have a tough climb just to build the coalition and uh, and start to get work done in a system that's very rigid uh, and does not respond to change that well. I mean, let's be clear. Olan came in with kind of the same agenda. I'm all about change. I'm going to reform the system uh, and didn't succeed either. So uh, I'm not prepared to say he's going to be a failure. That would be too dramatic. But I am prepared to say he has his work cut out for him. 
Sorry to be a little Well, because I was it's not happy, all bad. But. I had a moment of happiness. I'm going to cling to it. I'm just, I'm going to cling as Whatever best I to can do. to this shred, this Rosa. On Friday. It, we're counting on you, Rosa. On, I'm on, the shred. On Friday, Rosa, also known as the shred. The, on Friday, the polls showed Macron had a 24% lead. Then there was a hack. When the election happened, he ended up having like a uh, 31 or 32 percent lead. So he got a 33 percent boost from Putin. <laughs> well. OK, so Putin hacked and the French said, forget it. We're not getting pushed around by some Russian bully. Maybe. Can't that make me That's happy? a nice theory. No. That's a that's a really appealing theory, and I would like to believe it. I think we don't know, obviously. Uh, I mean, that, that hack came so close to the election itself. Did it have any impact at all? Who knows? Did You know, I, I, I would like to believe that the French— or at least a few of them en masse rose uh, and said, "We're gonna, we're gonna give the finger to Putin by going and voting for Macron." But, but I, I have a feeling that that probably was not that significant in the grand scheme of things. In the longer term, I think it'll be interesting it's to a see. A finger known as Le Oiseau. I mean, in the longer term, I think there's actually an interesting question about. Oh, it's so hard to be serious about international politics when my fellow podcast. Are making dirty jokes. Sorry, um, we'll behave. In in the longer term, no, I, I do think it'll be as we adapt to the new normal in which we will get these kinds of massive data dumps uh, in a more routine way, in which in which this is clearly becoming a form of political warfare that we can expect to see more and more often. If the impact on publics will be that that. Over time, they stop being effective because everybody is, starts just assuming that every politician has dirty laundry, which, of course, they do, um, and that every politician also has a number of extre- extremely tedious and boring emails, which they also, it turns out, do, uh, as we've now learned, You know that people will just stop paying attention and it will become an ineffective tool. Um, I don't know, though. I, all I can say is that I have not been to France recently. My father, however, was in France, and he was on the, the steps of the the, the Louvre for Macron's you know, victory announcement, mm. oh. uh, and his sense was very similar to to Julie's, which is that there was a a widespread air of we have dodged a bullet, but certainly not a widespread air of oh, and now everything is fine. So this is a celebration of relief, and maybe a little bit of a celebration of we're not as dumb as America. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> look on the hack thing. There was I saw one French commentator make the point that um, France doesn't have a Fox News. Um, but I think that keys into a bigger point here, which is that the right, Sarkozy, Fillon, all, all the others, they urged a vote against Le Pen. And this differentiates um, the French establishment right from the American, from the Republican Party, which, you know, caved in pretty much one by one to Trump. And, uh, and obviously there's a different party system, and so it's not exactly a parallel. But I think there is a larger sort of lesson there that, you know, you have a, lar- a, a big ecosystem from Fox and Murdoch and others in the United States and in Britain that doesn't really exist in France. And I know that they tried the alt-right here, tried Pepe the Frog in French, and it just doesn't really translate. Even though his name is Pepe? 
Yeah, that that would that would help. Well, that would help in you know Italy and Spain too. One would imagine, but Pepe Le Grand Wee. <laughs> <laughs> this is, is going to spiral down. Right? <laughs> yeah, they gave Le Digit to, uh, yeah. to Pepe. Yeah. By the way, I have a big fat wazo to offer up to a group of people out there because I've got a couple of tweets saying, you know, I like and even emails saying I like your podcast, but there's too much laughter, oh. and it's like. I, I, so yeah, close. jump in a lake. Yeah. You know, go listen to something. Go listen to Politico's podcast. You know, yeah, you all the other ones laughter. are boring. You want a boring podcast? Yeah, you know, if you, exactly. This is the if world. You don't laugh, you'll cry. Exactly. I mean, come on, folks. look. It's... Here's my philosophy of life. There's two kinds of people out there. There's those that get the joke, and there's those that don't get the joke. And life is way too short to spend time with the people who don't get the joke. And I mean that cosmically as well as politically. In any event, so you guys out there know who that wazo was for. Um, we're not laughing. We're not. No, no I'm laughing. <laughs> no I'm laughing, laughing at them. Let's get a little bit towards this sort of core question. The EU did seem like it was heading towards being a little less relevant. It looked like it might come apart at the seams. It looked like the president of the United States didn't much like NATO. It looked like he didn't much like multilateralism. And now, you know, France is in. You know, whether Macron gets a lot done or not, France is in. Merkel had a little bit of good news in, 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 in a state election over the weekend. She's probably going to win. So then you're going to have out of Austria, the Netherlands, France, and Germany, essentially, you know, countries saying, no, this, you know, this, we're, we're sticking together here. So maybe the reports of Europe's demise are a little premature. And whether or not we should be celebrating Macron's victory, it is, it, it is true that Putin's objective of weakening Europe, which he spent a lot of time and money on, and that's part of the reason that in weakening the NATO alliance, uh, may not be working out so well. What do, you, what do you think of that? Okay, here's why I'm still worried on oh, that front. <laughs> so now you're looking for optimism. So, you're not yeah, going to get it again. Um, you're no fun, Julie. I'm, I'm no. I'll try to laugh, though, yeah. but well, I hesitate now. Yeah. Um, so from our side of the Atlantic, I think there were three possibilities of what the Trump administration would do vis-a-vis -vis Europe. So there's the disruptor. Let me get under the hood like Putin and just, you know, try to— continue to bring it off the rails and, and be unhelpful partner. There's the benign neglect. I'll kind of say and do some right things, but I'm not going to really support the European project and just let it sit and possibly fester. Um, or there's the I'll provide U.S. leadership and bring some new ideas and support the project and be a good partner to our European friends. So it looks like we're not going to get the last option of lots of U.S. leadership and enthusiasm for Europe. We may not get the first option, which is is I'll work with Putin to undermine the entire European project. But maybe we end up with kind of some muddling through the benign neglect scenario. But I actually think that's bad, too, because despite everything you pointed out on the positive side, Europe has a lot going on. It's got Brexit. It's got counterterrorism challenges. It's got Russian aggression. Still has a migration problem. A couple of weak economies that need some help. Reform in France 
definitely needs to be tackled among other nations. So I think to say, oh, Europe's weathered the storm, it got through a couple of elections, the far right didn't really seize the day, and we're okay, we don't have Le Pen, Europe's going to be just fine, might be a little premature. Europe has a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do, too. But without Washington, without a U.S. administration that cares about Europe, that wants to work with Europe, that understands Europe, that has anyone appointed across the administration who knows something about Europe, we're in trouble. I I, I worry. Um, yes, Trump has agreed to meet the two big leaders of the European Union. He's going to see both Tusk and Juncker when he goes to Brussels on May 25th. That's a good thing in my book. And yes, Trump has said NATO's no longer obsolete. Hooray. But the reality is that this administration is not bringing fresh ideas to the European counterparts. And I'm not sure at the end of the day, most of the folks, Tillerson included, really care about the future of the European project. And so, sorry, David. Tillerson. I don't even know who that is. But, um, I mean, you know, I mean, I've heard the name, but it doesn't make a Vague, vague, vague recollection. Vague recollection. He's an oil man. Okay. But I'm going to keep fighting for it because my role here is cheery optimism. Okay? Go for it. Okay. Uh, That, what I heard from Julie, was a critique of the Trump administration And that's one of the reasons that I'm happy about this, Europe sticking together, because Europe could have been succumbing to centrifugal forces and would therefore not be an effective counterbalance to either Putin or to Trump. But if Europe is coming together around a center, it can actually be a global check to Trump. It can actually, well, you know, Merkel and to get some people around him and say, look, we're not for this. We're not going to. And one of the things that Merkel has done, and I got to say, Every day passes. I've got more and more respect for Angela Merkel. One of the things that goes with that Merkel, she speaks truth to power. She'll sit to Putin and she'll say, True. I'm not with that. She'll sit with Trump and she'll say, don't go giving us this stuff about um, NATO. So, so, so th- there is something, even with a weaker U.S., and maybe even especially with a weaker U.S., having some cohesion there in Europe is a positive thing, right? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And and this is this is one of the possible silver linings to the great Donald Trump experiment in, in having no government for the United States for four years um, is that maybe it actually motivates other actors on the world stage who are who are relatively benign actors on the world stage to to come together and ultimately provide a longer term counterbalance to U.S. power, not just as a in the meantime, while the U.S. is all messed up, but but, but I think longer term, it will be better for the world to have a more cohesive, more more capable united Europe. Uh, I think it'll be better for the globe altogether. So is, is this is it possible that this is what we will end up seeing, that the Europeans do a collective oh shit? You know, uh, we can't afford to flirt with all these silly Brexit type things anymore because, look, there's a maniac in the White House. That would be Oh la la, merde. <laughs> oh la la la, oh, oh merde. Um, Sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. That's what that's what people always say to my French, yeah, French textbooks. Um, I keep trying to say that to French people, and they they, 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 look always, at you they respond eyed. poorly. It's like saying top of the morning. Now. <laughs> they just roll their eyes. Does it, does it quite <laughs> work? But so so you know that could happen, and I and I think that as ever. 
you know, the collective task for all of us is 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 not just to sit back and think, oh, that's interesting, that could happen, but to try to actually make that happen. Uh, and it's it's there are notwithstanding the vacuum that is the Trump administration, and vacuum is probably the best case scenario, right? Um, there are things that others in the U.S. on the Hill in the journalistic community in the policy community more broadly can do to increase the likelihood that that happens. And I think that's where that's where our focus needs to be. Well, that's slightly encouraging. Can I, can I put in a word for Britain here? Brit- oh, I'd love to hear that. But Go I notice you it. don't use the term Great Britain. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Little Britain. I don't. Soon it'll be England and <laughs> Wales. <laughs> it'll, it'll, Britain minor. <laughs> it, it'll be the former United Kingdom um, of England and Wales, which spells as F-U-K-E-W, which I won't spell out. In politeness, <laughs> in politeness to your listeners. Um, the, um, the, I'm putting in a word for Britain uniting the EU because Theresa May has succeeded in getting 27 countries agreeing unanimously to a line. And that is the line on the Brexit negotiations. It's a real measure, not mm-hmm. of their skill at stitching together, you know, the, the 27 future member states, but of Theresa May's complete tone deafness to how it is her, her very aggressive opening negotiating pitches and the way she's campaigning in, in the forthcoming UK election go across in Brussels. So um, the EU is being united, you know, by two ang- Anglophone powers here. One, of course... Is bigger than the other, but they're both they're both making their contributions. Yeah. Well, this is a, this is this is a kind of a, a a great moment in that you have much as we did at the the dark moments of World War Two, the U.S., the U.K., and Russia coming to the rescue of Europe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, 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 not sure they see it that way. Yeah. But they're doing it in the most backwards way. In the first instance. That we're all coming to the rescue of Europe by being so odious that they don't want to be anything like us. And we're also all coming to the rescue of Europe because Putin, Theresa May, and before her, Nigel Farage, and Trump are all tacticians with no strategy. You know, they they sort of play. Is that is that fair, unfair, you know, Julie? I mean, you're sitting there shaking your head. And I'm <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think that that's certainly fair. Um, I mean, I, I do think though that Putin has kind of one overarching strategy to bring down the European project, divide Europe from within. He is no doubt relishing the fact that while we've gotten through some of these elections in Austria and the Netherlands and now France, we still have our friends in Poland and Hungary that are out there working with him uh, to disrupt the European project. I mean, that those are hard exits of the European Union, but they're kind of, those are countries that are kind of have made a soft exit from the European Union. They're not uh, altogether interested in meeting the criteria that they originally signed up for in terms of meeting their commitments, um, you know, democratic process and civil society and human rights and, and all the rest. So, yeah, I, I but I, I take your point. I, I just add one interesting thing talking about tactics and strategy kind of that I heard from a number of people while I was in Europe last week, comments about the Trump administration's strategy. There's a lot of talk about strategic ambiguity and whether or not that's deliberate or by accident on the part of the Trump administration. It seems that our European friends have now come to call the overarching strategy of the Trump administration strategic ambiguity. It's very generous of them. Yeah, and they're worried because even if that's a deliberate strategy on the part of the Trump administration, 
administration, and I don't think it is, but let's say for a minute it is. Um, and let's say for a minute we could find some value in it for our adversaries, keeping them on their toes, not sure what to expect from the administration, uh, whether or not they take you know some sort of punitive action in regards to North Korea or Syria or whatever. It doesn't work for our allies. And so what I heard time and time again is we don't like the uncertainty. We don't know what Washington wants from us. We don't know what the plan is. We don't know what their views towards us are. We feel like we're being kept on edge, and that's a bad thing for the transatlantic relationship. So the message they sent me back with is, you know, Julie, if you happen to run into anybody over there that's in control, uh, make sure they understand that while What's they the may... Likelihood uh, of that, Julie? Hey, I, I won't name names, but I will be actually at the White House the day after tomorrow. So, um, so uh, anyways, the message was, for anybody who's listening, we don't like and we don't find it comforting to run up against this strategic ambiguity or just plain old uncertainty and please make it go away. We can't make it go away. We can't make it go away until we until Trump goes away uh, because, no, I mean, needless to say, I don't think it's strategic ambiguity. I think it's just it's it's I mean, that that would be making, a you know, a virtue of necessity, which perhaps is all we can do right now. Yeah, but, yeah. but but it's it's Trump is erratic. Trump may say, oh, I'm erratic because it's really important to keep them all guessing. But in fact, he's just erratic because he's erratic and he's going to stay that way. And I, and I do think I mean, this is as, as I said before. I, 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 th- I, and I, I don't think we can say it strongly enough to to our European friends uh, and others around the world who sort of share our broader goals and commitments. Stop wasting everybody's time by saying, oh, I'm so distressed. I don't know what Trump is going to do. Get used to it. That's not going to change as long as he's there. You need to stop focusing on that and instead focus on what are you going to do? to constrain him in the ways that he needs to be constrained, frankly. I, I, or let me use an even stronger word than to constrain him, to contain him. I mean, I think, I think if, if I, you know, if I were sitting anywhere other than Washington, D.C., I would be thinking about what is the most effective strategy for containing the United States during the last four years, during the next four years, uh, and minimizing the likelihood that the erratic behavior of the man in the White House will do permanent damage to other parts of the world. And that would be what, and I would be viewing it exactly that way. That's your strategy as a foreigner? That would be my strategy as a foreigner. No, that would be my strategy as a foreigner. It's like, no, but, but I mean, when, you know, there's a certain amount we think about, we think about North Korea, we think about the Iranians, and we all, you know, over the years have had many conversations. We sit there scratching our heads and we think, well, are they strategic or are they just crazy? Are they crazy like foxes? Are they just crazy like crazy people? You know, and and on some level, it doesn't necessarily matter. The answer is the same in in terms of well, where where does that where do you go from there? And the answer is you minimize the likelihood that they can do permanent damage is what you focus on and and stop wasting your time with the sort of metaphysical question of their craziness and how strategic it is. And I think other countries would be well advised to do precisely that with regard to the United States right now. Well, but I think aren't other countries? Isn't that? I mean, that's interesting if you sort of view the main potential of the United States as a threat. But I think most of what we see, whether it's the Chinese or countries in the Persian Gulf or the Egyptians or the Turks or whomever, is we see countries saying, what can I get out of this government? And, you know, it's not, you know, I mean, I'm not worried if it's going to collapse. I'm just, I'm just, I think this guy's transactional. 
And I think, you know, for a little bit of this, I can get a little bit of that, or at least they'll get out of my hair. I think they're not worried enough. Yeah, No, I just think they're looking at, like, what's in it for me? But they're also making all these fake wins, you know? I mean, it's like rebranding something that's already, you know, so take the NATO example. NATO's been, NATO nations have been increasing defense spending ever since Putin showed up in Crimea. And they've had a real change in defense spending, not enough, I would add, but a change since 2015. And now for Trump to come in and say the money's pouring in, I think NATO allies are more than willing to say, sure, buddy. If you want to tell yourself that you're responsible for that, knock yourself out because we don't want added well, friction with you. With and so, yeah, so you just create these like faux, good on you, Mr. President, thanks. But it frustrates me to no end because he gets to walk <laughs> around thinking and his supporters look at these unbelievable things that he's doing. You know, same is true. Oh, NATO never thought about counterterrorism until I came along. Mm-hmm. Well, what was the 10 plus year engagement in Afghanistan all about? But, but if you're counterterrorism. If you're, well, right, or maybe, everything's maybe, not, everything yeah. since nine eleven. Uh, but but if you're you know one of these countries, you don't care whether you know you just want your deal. Yeah, you know, and I you know I mean I It'll think save your soul. You know, a- Canada <laughs> Canada and Mexico are both like yeah sure we'll renegotiate NAFTA, and you know what they're going to get TPP. They're go- they're going to get the deal that they had, but you know that the Trump said was a terrible deal. But now if it's Trump PP, <laughs> you know now if it's tr- Trump NAFTA. Um, then they're going to be like, well, sure, you know, we'll call it whatever you want, dude. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get what we want out of this thing. And I just think the U.S. is going to be played. But there's not a positive. I mean, we're not going to get TTIP, right? I mean, that, that's that's well, pretty much off. Like, may, maybe it'll revive four years from now. Yeah. Um, no, no, well, Merkel, um, Merkel brought it up in the meeting. I don't, I don't know. You know so Trump, Trump has got a real, to... real impulse towards whatever is the inventive, not invented here syndrome. Whatever's the opposite of that, right? In other words, if he can take credit for it, he's for it. And he's already said to Theresa May, let's go and cut a deal with you guys or, you know, talked about that. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, there may be, there may be some action on this. Although, so, honestly. Although we know in that case that it's not possible till after the EU deals concluded. You, you cannot negotiate. Right. And then would the political traffic bear it here in Washington? Well, and then the question for, is, you know, what's a negotiation um, and, yeah. you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, meanwhile, by the way, parenthetically, not relevant to this broader discussion, but it seems like there's a bit of a war going on in the White House among the trade officials. And, you know, Peter Navarro, who's the Sebastian Gorka of trade, um, which is to say unqualified nut job who couldn't have hooked on with any other, you know, the Marco Rubio campaign would have said, are you kidding? We'll never talk to you, is being undercut by the fact that Goldman Sachs doesn't want it. And Goldman Sachs runs this government. And Gary Cohn is actually winning all of these arguments. And so, you know, the kind of interesting thing as a subtext of all of this is that just as France has gone globalist, so is the Trump administration, but don't don't tell anybody. Um, but I but, think I think I mean, I, I agree with Julie. The the, the bad stuff is going to uh, is going to be vetoed. Trump will probably be talked um, out of really stupid things by Jim Mattis, by H.R. McMaster, maybe by Tillerson, whose job we can't remember, and on the economic side by Gary Cohn. But having the ability to orchestrate positive initiatives, um, which in a fast-changing world, and including a fast-changing geopolitical world, is really, really important to maintain the transatlantic alliance and to maintain American global leadership. Having those kinds of positive initiatives 
orchestrated, approved, stuck to by Trump is about, you know, as as likely, I think, but as Trump. As Trump. stick to anything. Right. He wakes up in the morning, you know, on Monday morning he woke up and he saw that Sally Yates was going to testify, which we'll get to in the next podcast, and he, like, sends out a tweet about her. Of course, he misspells the word White House counsel, so he has to retweet it with the appropriate spelling, and then somebody on CNN goes, you know, that's witness intimidation, yeah. and then they take down the tweet. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... And all of a sudden, the story of the morning is the tweets, and then that gets you into Sally Yates and so on and so on. He, the guy can't control anything. Let me let me talk two more Europe things in this Europe podcast, and th- and then we'll wrap it up, and, and folks will just have to come back uh, on uh, Thursday for the discussion of the Sally Yates stuff. But first for um, Rosa, and then I'm going to go to Julie, Mattis is in the Baltics or has been in the Baltics and has been visiting there and is trying to reassure them about Article 5 and that we are we are in despite all the sounds that people have been making to the contrary. Um, do you think that's significant? I think it will be moderately reassuring. <laughs> do I think it's – I mean the significance is that is that we are in a situation where we have to have our defense secretary running around and telling allies and partners that the president of the United States doesn't mean the stuff he says. Um, that's that's obviously significant and, and quite dispiriting. I, I actually think it's an open question. You know, if push came to shove, who would prevail uh, – in, in policy terms, would it be the sort of axis of Madison McMaster? Would it be the axis of craziness and Steve Bannon and Trump? And I don't. I wish I was confident that the the Mattis uh, would prevail, but I'm not. I'm not particularly sure. So, I, in other words, I'm not. I'm not sure that the uh, audiences to Jim Mattis's message. Uh, ought to feel as reassured as they probably will. Well, the jury's still out on this whole axis of adults thing that yeah. our friend Colin I didn't say Call axis keeps of adults, but. No, 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 no. But Colin <laughs> uses that, that term a lot. And it's like, really, well, let's look at this axis of adults. OK, Rex Tillerson is a phantom. You know, he speaks to the State Department. But he's an old phantom. It, is it, pardon me? No, never mind. Yeah, but I mean, Rex Tillerson is just like, he's a cipher, at least at this point. He hasn't really done anything. He he apparently, I was talking to a diplomat just before we did this, and he was like, we went in to see Tillerson, and he had no government experience, so all he did was talk about his business experience. You know, smart guy, but but not, doesn't really know how to do this job, doesn't have anybody hired to help him do this job, and the White House doesn't really care to talk to him about it. So I don't think he's really in the mix. Uh, Mattis, you know, gets some of what he wants, but he doesn't get some of what he wants because there's still a battle in the White House over who is ascendant here. And there have been stories this week about, you know, McMaster pissing off Trump because, you know, he, you know, he stands up to him. And, and, and of course, the Bannons and the Gorkas and all those nutcases are off there trying to undermine McMaster. And I heard a story, and maybe you guys have heard it or not, but that on Friday they brought in some reporters to the White House to be to be briefed on the trip to the Middle East. And McMaster began by saying, OK, I have to go in a few minutes, so I'm going to kick this off. And Jared Kushner said, no, I'll kick this off. And <laughs> sort of <laughs> stepped in and bigfooted McMaster. And, you know, we know how that turns out because it happened in the Obama administration. There were store- meetings where Jim Jones mm-hmm. – um, 
you know, was chairing a meeting and then one of the closer backbenchers to Obama would say, no, well, this is what the president really thinks. And that undercuts the authority of the national security advisor. So we don't really know how much influence he's likely to have or to end up with in, in all of this. And so I think that's something to look at. Julie, the one thing that I want to ask while we're doing this is we're looking ahead to the week is I think we have an Erdogan visit. We do. We do have an Erdogan visit um, coming up uh, next week, and it's going to be just a train wreck. Erdogan is still convinced Wait, Trump that— Trump and Erdogan a train wreck? How could that happen? Well, OK, so it's a little <laughs> counterintuitive, right, because we all know that Trump has some admiration for some of these authoritarian leaders, and he's the one that called Erdogan after the recent referendum where Erdogan was consolidating his executive power and said lots of nice things about the guy, right? So you would think— <laughs> I get the impression that if Trump had his way and nobody was looking, he would, like, take these guys to fancy strip clubs, (laughs) you know? Okay, I'm just going to leave that. (laughs) But that would be what he would do. He'd be like, hey, guys, let's come over and let's – yeah. Okay. So back to Erdogan and the visit. Um, so, uh, yes. So one would assume that they're going to get on two peas in a pod, you know, let's consolidate power together um, and talk about our tweets and on all the rest. Um, but in fact, uh, Erdogan. Yeah, I love that. When I see my biggest see, tweet, yeah. how big is my tweet? Well, my Measure. tweet was bigger than your tweet, right? But the reality is that Erdogan still believes that in a desk drawer in the U.S. government somewhere, we have uh, full-on evidence that uh, Gulen was responsible for the attempted coup uh, against him. And so he's still waiting for the United States to extradite Gulen. Do you think he believes that? Oh, yeah. I think he's still convinced (laughs) we've got it it hidden somewhere. Wait a minute. Was it Erdogan behind the coup? That I cannot say. (laughs) Uh, But— Anyways, I think he's in for a rough ride because supposedly this is the moment when the Trump administration is also going to say to Erdogan, hey, really appreciate your help in the Syria and Syria and lots of other places, but we're going to keep working with the Kurds. And when we head into Raqqa, we're going to work as closely as possible with the YPG and other groups that you don't like. And so because Trump in particular is not big on nuance or history or reading or getting a detailed brief, um, I think this could be a train wreck but because Erdogan, it will be otherwise a glorious <laughs> meeting. So watch this space. I think it's going to be bad news. I can imagine a lot of tension in that press conference if they hold one. Gulen, I mean Gulen, Erdogan likes to get red in the face and uh, has a, little, a whole litany of complaints against the United States and we will just throw Trump right in there with him. Uh, so I don't think it's going to be sweetness and light. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll find some wonderful common ground and areas of agreement. But I really think well, the administration's both, in for a rude awakening. Maybe they could each imprison somebody from the press together. At the they, same both, they both love doing that. Aww. Well, it would be nice. Be so sweet. Yeah, it'd be like the U.S. Turkish press intimidation cooperative initiative, or something. You know, some you know those kind of nice things. That's so a confidence building. Measure. Yeah, it was just a yeah. confidence building <laughs> measure between our 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 two countries. Ed, I want to turn to you to conclude. We're looking at at Europe. For all Americans, the only true perspective on Europe comes from the British, uh, because frankly, they are the only ones that speak English. Right. Um, well, this is the Irish. And do they? <laughs> Much better. Much better. <laughs> uh, but um, at the end of all of this discussion, you feel net better 
about the outlook for Europe, right? Yes, the outlook for Europe. But that's only because we started with such a net terrible position. Look, I think September is going to be an important month. Merkel, as I said earlier, said today there will be no change in the fiscal arrangement in Europe, which, of course, is death knell to half of Macron's aspirations. But she had to say that. There's a German election. Germany, as you know, for historical reasons, has an almost religious attachment to completely economically irrational rules. Um, Very hard to break that religious attachment in advance of an election. A little bit easier afterwards. So there's the Merkel election. Then there is uh, Xi Jinping's um, reappointment for five years as president, um, you know, coming up at the September um, five-yearly congress in Beijing. And he's been treating Trump, as we saw in uh, Mar-a-Lago, like you would a six-year-old with a gun, just being very, very careful, soothe them, reassure them, say nice things, do nothing, no sudden moves. Um, I think he might get a bit more ebullient after September and Merkel will get more confident. So, you know, the Trump story isn't just about Trump. It's about how others react to Trump. And and I think their reactions are going to evolve and become more confident over time. And I hope that's true of Europe. Well, I started out an optimist and I'm going to end up an optimist on that cheery note. It's a better week than it was last week in terms of Europe. And uh, if you want to find out where the week wasn't so good for all of us, tune in to the next episode of the ER because there's other stuff cooking. Uh, meanwhile, thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Ed. Everybody come back next time. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.